0: Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or an educational institution that has an intracampus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, Please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.
1: Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to take a look at a very interesting humanitarian agency of the United Nations and the former director of that agency. My guest today is Sir Mark Lowcock. Sir Mark was appointed United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator in May of 2017 and served in that role until June 2021. His new book is Relief Chief, A Manifesto for Saving Lives in Dire Times. Sir Mark Lowcock, welcome to today's Global Connections program.
0: Thank you so much, and I'm thrilled to chat to you about the book.
1: I'm looking forward to it. It's extremely timely and very important and very interesting. But let's just jump before we get to the book. Let's do talk about a little bit about your previous position. You were the you were under secretary general for OCHA, the the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, as I recall. Is that correct? And what basically is the mission of OCHA?
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was. Um, the head of the office, sometimes called the Relief Chief, which is why my book is called Relief Chief. And Odger's job is basically to identify the big humanitarian crises around the world and bring together the humanitarian agencies, UN agencies like UNICEF or the World Food Programme, the Red Cross and Red Crescent Family, and the big international NGOs, to assess the needs when there's a new crisis, whether it's an earthquake or a hurricane or a drought or a war, and then to develop a plan to respond to those needs, to keep the people caught up in these crises alive, and then to execute that plan. That, that is Ocha's job, basically. And my role was created by the General Assembly, the, all the governments of the United Nations in 1991, and I had 12 predecessors. They served on average for two years each. I, so I was the lucky 13th holder of the um, post and um, and I served for four years, including through the pandemic. And one of the roles of the um, relief chief is to be the chair of this thing called the Interagency Standing Committee, mm-hmm. which is a formal body created again by all the governments of the world in the UN bringing together the major humanitarian agencies with the idea being if they coordinate well with each other and collaborate, people in need of help, people whose lives are right on the line are more likely to get the help they need to
1: survive and recover and then to move forward. OTA is a very important agency within the United Nations. There's also another group called the Interagency Standing Committee. What exactly was that committee? What was its function? So
0: the Interagency Standing Committee was also created by the governments of the world in the um, General Assembly of the UN, and it basically is a group chaired by me as the relief chief, comprising the heads of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent family, the major UN humanitarian agencies like the World Food Programme and UNICEF and the World Health Organization, and representatives of the biggest, operationally most active international NGOs, so the not-for-profit civil society sector, and they all came together because they had a common goal to get life-saving help to people caught up in these crises. And we all agreed, um, and the countries in the UN believed strongly, that if these agencies worked together well and coordinated and collaborated, that would get better help and save more lives when
1: people were caught up in these crises. That's extremely important to have the coordination, and there's no better example of it today, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, is if we look at what's going on in Ukraine. Now, the Security Council has gotten quite a bit of negative publicity, to be quite honest, because of the five permanent members on the Security Council and Russia being able to veto any resolution, or the U.S., perhaps, whichever case might be. But when you look on the ground in Ukraine, you see that there are UN agencies. You mentioned the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF. You've got the World Food Program, a UN agency. These refugee agency. These are all agencies right on the front, almost on the front lines in some cases, I guess. But it's so critical to have that coordination and cooperation, is it not?
0: Yes, it is. And my... Old office, um, the Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, they're there, they're on the ground doing the coordination. And they were, for example, very closely involved in those um, efforts that were made a month or so ago to rescue, get evacuations of hundreds and hundreds of civilians, mostly women and girls, caught up in that steel plant, being bombarded by Putin's forces in southern uh, Ukraine. So that role of coordinating to identify needs, to develop the response, and then to get access to people caught up in these crises is a crucial part of any humanitarian response.
1: It certainly is. Well, let's shift gears and go to your book, your very timely and interesting book, and it's titled Relief Chief, A Manifesto for Saving Lives in Dire Times. Do you happen to have a copy handy by any chance? Here it is. There you go. <laughs> okay. What, what motivated you to write this? What was your main purpose in doing that?
0: Well, I'd spent four years, twice as long as the average person doing that job, probably at the time of the highest level of humanitarian need we've seen over the last 30 years. These crises have been growing because of a combination of conflict around the world like Ukraine, but also Syria, Yemen, and other places the growing impacts of climate change, and then the impact of the COVID pandemic. The numbers of people in need in these crises got bigger than ever. Humanitarian agencies do a good job. And I wanted to tell the story of how they save millions of lives um, every year by working in these crisis zones. But I also wanted to explain how they're increasingly overwhelmed because the mounting volume of these crises and what they need to do differently. Uh, to provide better help to the people caught up in crises. So it's an account of my efforts to coordinate this whole system over those four years, but it's also a manifesto for doing a better job for saving lives in these dire times.
1: Exactly. And were there, when you say it's a manifesto, did they have certain themes that you focused on? Did you look at the organization of the humanitarian relief, uh, the technical issues, the funding, uh, or just all of the above and more?
0: All of the above and more. And in my proposals for making this system work uh, more effectively, I basically focused on four big areas. The first is if you want to reduce the number of people whose lives are ruined by these crises, you have to address the causes, not just the symptoms. Um, And the world has stopped being as effective as it was 10, 20, 30 years ago in addressing those causes. Uh, Ultimately, these crises happen in countries which are fundamentally extremely poor and haven't developed in the way most countries around the world have over the last 50 years. So you have to address that. The second thing that I think there's a lot of scope for improvement on is many of these crises are predictable in the sense that when there's a drought in the Horn of Africa, we know very well from past experience that unless you deal with the likely consequences and plan to do that straight away, then months from now, there will be starving babies and it will be very difficult and expensive to save their lives. By the same token, when a storm is brewing in the Caribbean heading for one of those vulnerable islands, you get a week or so notice. So if you um, act much earlier by identifying the forthcoming problem, having money available before the crisis hits and having a plan to respond, You get a much better cheaper more humane response so that whole focus of anticipating problems and acting earlier was the second area the third area relates to um, a need to have much stronger focus on the groups which will be most vulnerable in any crisis we know from long experience it's always women and girls always people with disabilities who suffer most in these crises but our response plans haven't done enough to target them and to focus on them. And so there's a lot of unnecessary suffering by not acting on the knowledge we have that it's always certain groups who are going to be most vulnerable. And then the last area that increasingly I felt was of crucial importance as I gained more experience in this job is to do with the fact that most of the decisions about what help to provide are determined in discussions between the the agencies like the Red Cross or the UN agencies or the NGOs on the one hand, and on the other hand, the donors who finance them, who are mostly governments, largely Western governments, the people who everyone's trying to help are cut out too often from that conversation. And we'd all do a much better job if we took as our starting point, well, what do these folk caught up in these crises say they want? And are we giving them those things? So those are the four areas, I've got a hundred different ideas uh, in my book, but those are the four areas which they focus on.
1: Mm-hmm. Those four are extremely important, very uh, very laudable. And if you could just maybe take one example from each on how we could accomplish that, how, how we could do it better in the future. Well, my
0: proposal in the book is to create an independent group who are not going to be delivering the assistance, Because all the agencies delivering the assistance are, in a way, a bit of a vested interest. So create an independent group whose job it is to go in at the outset, ask people what they want, and then come back a few months later and ask if they got what they said they wanted, and feed all that information back to both the agencies um, and to uh, the people who fund them. And what that tries to do is deal with this, deal with two risks. Firstly, that um, too often, people are given things they don't want, and they often sell it in markets, so that's an, an inefficient thing to do, or people are given no choice, now, they're completely stripped of their humanity and their dignity and their ability to do things for themselves, and that's, very, that's a very bad, uh, that compounds their misery and their suffering. So if, if we ask people and then give them what they say they want, we'll,
1: we'll do better on multiple levels. That would certainly be very important and could be extremely valuable as far as this anticipation. Another item you mentioned was the advanced warning. What types, are are there not some advanced warning systems out there? I know uh, I've heard of discussions over the years and so many of the different agencies to anticipate upcoming problems or disasters, and some you just can't maybe like the invasion of, of Russia <laughs> into Ukraine. Maybe that was just totally unforeseeable. I don't know. You probably have some ideas on that, but uh, what, what would you do in the area of advanced warning?
0: Well, the, the basic point is um, the humanitarian system, historically, has been very reactive. We watch the drought happen. We know that people will lose their livestock and their crops. We then watch them sell their assets as they run out of any other means of coping. And then we watch their children starve. And it it would be much, much better when we see the signal using data and modern technology, satellite data and so on, that there's going to be a big effect of the drought. That is the time to start the intervention. And if you have agreed in advance in a country like Somalia, which we know is vulnerable to drought, you've agreed in advance with all the funders, when we see the signal, then we're going to act. And if you've also prepared a plan in advance, you can implement the plan straight away. Let me give you an example. In um, early 2017, in Madagascar, the Pasteur Institute saw that there was the beginnings of an outbreak of plague you know, that disease that killed a third of humanity in the 14th century. As soon as the Pasteur Institute, and, and they said there would be thousands of cases, and it was quite likely to spread to other countries. As soon as they sent that warning out from my office, we provided a million dollars before there was a single case of the plague. Actually, an um, outbreak, uh, before the outbreak started, as soon as the warning came. And what that meant is there weren't thousands of cases, there were hundreds, and it didn't spread to anywhere else. So that's basically the concept.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it's very important too. I remember with the Ebola virus, I know that the Obama administration, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, a variety of other folks took a very aggressive stance on that and really, as I understand it, they limited it and it was horrible for the four or five countries that were experiencing it the worst, but it still could have been so much worse and could have spread to other parts of the world. Could it not?
0: Yes. And um, I talk about, uh, that was in 2014, 2015 in in West Africa, Sierra Leone and Guinea and Liberia, the case you um, talk about there. And it spread further than it needed to actually, because although people eventually piled in to stop it, it got a bit out of hand. Now, In my book, I talk about a a later case of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo and how um, it was very difficult to deal with because it was in a part of the Congo where there's a high degree of conflict and uh, lots of violence, and it made it hard for the aid agencies to respond. But they did a sufficiently good job that they were able to prevent the virus in that case spreading to any other country. So it's another example. of If you act early enough and effectively enough, and you have the money, you can bring some of these problems under control better than if you sit and watch. Mm.
1: And it's even, as you mentioned, when you're in an area of conflict, it makes it even more problematic as we've seen with polio, with the really the polio, a very effective polio plus program launched by Rotary International, the World Health Organization, UN Children's Fund and the Centers for Disease Control, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and many other groups and there are only two countries right now, Afghanistan and Pakistan, where there really are major, and they're really not major in comparison to what it was years ago. But it's very difficult to do that in a war zone.
0: Yes, you're exactly right. And I spent a lot of my professional life in the 1990s and the early 2000s being involved with all those groups you talk about, including Rotary, who made a long-standing commitment in this area of work. And I know that you're... You yourself have been engaged with that for a long time. Um, Polio used to be something across the world. When um, my parents were young, it was a disease that could have threatened them in the UK. Many people in the developed countries um, suffered from it. Now, as you say, it's, it's just in a very small number of countries, Pakistan, Afghanistan in particular, and a very small number of cases. And the only reason it's left there is because of conflict. Um, So it's hardest to eradicate these problems in in a conflict situation, as you said.
1: That's very true. And this is why we have to realize that these, especially diseases, are very communicable at times and they spread around the world. As we've seen with COVID, we're talking now about monkeypox and a variety of other diseases or maybe another COVID wave. So we are in an interdependent world and we have to really help people in other parts of the world. Make sure that we all stay safe. It's not just in their best interest, ours is in everybody's best interest. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer. You like our shows and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a very, very important topic of humanitarian assistance. And my guest is an expert in this area. Sir Mark Lowcock was appointed United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordination in May 2017, and he served in that role until June 2021. His new book is Relief Chief, A Manifesto for Saving Lives in Dire Times. Before I forget it, let me mention, if our viewers would like, they can go to www.unocha.org to get more information. But that sort of leads me into my first question after our break. The the United Nations is still, even with all of its warts and imperfections, the epicenter of the world as far as bringing the countries of the world together. And you've got 193 members of the General Assembly, you have the 15 members of the Security Council, and you've got a panoply of agencies that are there to help people combat problems if they're refugees or Their health problems or whatever but as you look at it you've you've had a really a keen insight you look at uh osha and the un system in general do you have any recommendations on how it can uh, i won't say reform itself but make structural changes to become more efficient and to be more effective
0: yes and i talk about that quite a lot in the book and the starting point we all need to recognize is
1: that when the powerful
0: countries after World War II created the United Nations, they deliberately each gave themselves a veto so that um, they knew that they would be able to stop anything they didn't like happening. And one, and one of the consequences of that is there's a, a lot of the things people complain about um, in the UN are actually complaints about the behaviors of the powerful countries. Um, whose interests may not always be served by a collective effort to tackle a problem. We see that now with the tensions between Russia um, and Western countries in the Security Council because of Putin's invasion of uh, Ukraine. Equally, though, um, the United Nations is a big organisation, big bureaucracy, and you need constantly with these huge organisations to be trying to get more effective and more efficient. And we did a number of things... um, while I was there with Antonio Guterres, firstly, we tried to um, decentralise decision making to the countries where we were working rather than have too much concentrated in the New York headquarters. Secondly, we um, reformed the way we think about um, um, management systems for staff in the UN. In particular, we wanted to be more diverse. We wanted more women in senior positions. We got rid of a lot of bureaucratic processes. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll sort of give you an example of that. When I first arrived and the staff of my office would give me talking points for the next foreign minister or the next dignitary I was going to see, there would be a, often a junior staff member who would write the first version of those talking points and then they would pass through the hands of 10 other people in the office before they would get to me and that was completely unnecessary and very demoralizing for the first person who uh started the work because often they saw their their words getting made worse as it passed from one hand to the the other hand yeah, so was... you know, that's just one example of um lots of the things we did to try to make the processes more efficient and more effective and you have to do that all the time in any organization whether it's Private sector or public sector, you get new opportunities through technology, uh, information technology in particular, and you, you and you. But you also bump into new problems, and you have to continually um, adapt and improve, and have that mindset of never being satisfied uh, with whether you're doing a good enough job or not, but always try to improve.
1: Exactly, you have to reinvent yourself. <laughs> no matter no matter the organization, of course, the UN is so different there is no other organization like it in the world that brings all the governments, really all, not all, but almost all the governments of the world together under one roof. And it's, it's a very, it can be very amicable at times. It can be very diplomatic and it can be contentious, but it's still, you have to deal with those 193 governments and they all have agendas, but I'm amazed I've covered the UN for 40 plus years and I'm amazed at how it has. Imp- it's still not perfect. Far from it, but it has improved because 40 years ago, you didn't put the word "efficient" and "United Nations" in the same sentence. That just didn't fit. As <laughs> you, you probably yeah. ran into that yourself, I would imagine. But it, it it has improved so much, and it is so critical. It's absolutely essential to have the United Nations. There's no way this high tech world could get by without it. If we, we won't go into all that today, but. Anyway, that's just my own personal opinion, just opinionating on this. But let me ask you, Sir Mark, in uh, the last minute or so we have, as you look at this whole humanitarian situation, uh, we see the need has risen quite dramatically and probably will rise even more given some of the political dislocation and uh, potential conflicts around the world. What uh, two or three suggestions would you make? I know some of them are in your book, but you would encourage people to think about so that we could be more, uh, more transparent, but also more effective in reaching out to help people who are in uh, dire circumstances.
0: So the first thing is we really have to address the causes of these problems if we don't want to watch them getting worse and worse and worse. And you know, for much of the last 50 years, life of people in most countries around the world has been improving. But well, that improvement has tailed off over the last five to 10 years, especially in the most vulnerable countries, most prone to these big humanitarian disasters. So the first thing to do is to help those very fragile, vulnerable countries develop faster to make their populations more self-sufficient and less um, kind of vulnerable to the to the next crisis that comes along. And the second thing to do, I think, is... Um, to recognize that when there is a new crisis, whether it's a um, a big drought or whether it's a massive uh, flood event or volcano, or whether it's uh, some kind of conflict, unless you deal with the crisis where it starts, you shouldn't be surprised if it spreads. Millions of Ukrainians have had to flee. In the civil war in Syria, six and a half million people um, left and became refugees in neighboring countries it's always best to look after people as close as possible to where they start and that does mean that at the beginning of these crises the best strategy is always to be generous and provide financing so that people can be looked after when they when they start and then the third thing um, I would say because this is something I'm very passionate about and I be, I came to believe I've I, largely because of all the people I met in um, my um, job around the world whose lives have been ruined by these crises. You have to take as the starting point, what do the people caught up in these problems say they want and provide the things they say they want? That's how you get the best response.
1: Well, sir, Mark locop congratulations on your new book. It's very timely, it's very important. And I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.